Good morning. I am excited to be with you all this morning. My name is Charles. If you're a first-time guest with us today, we are so honored to have you with us. Thank you for joining us today. Hi, Ken. Ken, since you're a dad, um, start off with you and all the other dads in this room. I'm going to do something that I'm a little bit reluctant to do. This is hard for me, but I think it's for the good of the church. So in your bulletin, if you grabbed a bulletin on the way in or you scanned the QR code, which is awesome. Thank you, office staff, uh, for bringing us into the 21st century. If you scanned that to get the digital bulletin, you'll notice in the bulletin there's a set of discussion questions. And we put these out not because we just want to chop down more trees uh, and help the economy, but because discussing the message with your family is a great discipleship tool, just another tool we want to put into your hands to be able to disciple your kids in the faith. Who's the most important influence on raising children in the faith? It's the parents. Yeah, it's not, it's not your Sunday school teachers. It's not the pastors. It's you parents that God has given that. And specifically fathers, you have a specific role. God calls you out in Ephesians. He says, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the instruction of the Lord. And so fathers, there's a particular admonishment given to you. And so I want to exhort all you dads to take your discussion guide and use that sometime today. Maybe that's on the drive home. Maybe it's uh, over dinner tonight or just this afternoon. There's a pause and grab some snacks. But to discuss those questions with your kids as a means of reinforcing and discipling your kids uh, in the faith. And I've just heard some great stories about this. I know one family, they do this on their drive home. And uh, they've had some great results with that. I I love this. This is one of the best parts of my Sunday is when I get to go through these questions with my kids. They really get into it, and it's an all-out affair, uh, interactive, and they're just vying for gold stars, um, clamoring for gold stars to get answers to their questions. So here's what I'm going to do. This will help you out. And again, this is kind of hard for me to, to relinquish this, but dads and moms, I'm giving you permission to give your kids gold stars uh, when you do the discussion question together. So there you go. I hope that helps you in your discipleship. Uh, no, the, no these, are, these are just like from me. They're from my gold star supply. I'm authorizing you to access those. The uh, discussion questions also are not just for families with children still in the home. This is for all of you, so I encourage you all to, to use these as a Discuss these with your spouse. If you're a widow, call another widow. Discuss these. Uh, encourage you to uh, have some sweet fellowship as you share with each other how the Lord has spoken to you through his word on Sunday. Well, let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a speaking God and you have spoken to us through your holy word. And God, I just pray that we would receive scripture this morning as the saints did before us, that not as the words of man, but as the word of God. And that you would feed us, God, you would equip us, you would make us strong, God, that no matter what happens in the world around us, that you would raise up a people, that we would be a church on fire for you, that is excited and in love and overflowing with the joy of the Lord, even in the midst of hardship and persecution. God, that you would be so great, we'd have so much joy in Jesus, the world could not help but take note. 
Lord, prepare our hearts, give us minds to understand your word, give us hearts that would receive and obey and uh, respond to your word, that we would repent and obey as your spirit leads us, and that we would be changed from the inside out. I ask these things in Jesus' good name. Amen. I recently read about a public figure, and the world was appalled when they discovered that he was actually an evangelical Christian, and get this, he actually believes the Bible. The fact that someone would be criticized for being a Christian and believing the Bible should not surprise us. Uh, Jesus said in John 15, Remember the word that I spoke to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they also will persecute you. Paul writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3. He says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. If you believe, as the Bible sets forth, that marriage is one man and one woman for life, you are out of step with the world. If you believe that there's actually two genders and that it's good to be made a woman or good to be made a man and both are made equally in God's image, you will be termed hateful and intolerant. I have already experienced hostility simply for believing what the Bible says. I'm just curious to ask, how many, how many of you have experienced some sort of mistreatment or hostility or persecution simply because you're a Christian or you, or you believe the Bible? Oh, that's a lot more than I thought. Well, have we got a psalm for you? If you haven't experienced hostility for believing the Bible, it's coming. It is coming. Uh, I remember over a decade ago, I was in my Christian ethics class, and the professor was telling us, he said, gay marriage is coming. And that was just hard to believe at the time, but he was absolutely right. He said, there's a day coming when to be an evangelical Christian, you will be viewed as someone of like how the world now looks at the Ku Klux Klan, that that kind of hostility and hatred is coming. And that leads us to Psalm 123. I almost skipped over this psalm. But as an under-shepherd, I realized God's people are going to need this. Because what do you do when you're mocked for following Jesus? What do you do when people look down on you for being a Christian? There's a psalm for that. Psalm 123. The big picture of Psalm 123 is it's one of the songs of ascents as uh, our deacon chair Tom mentioned. Uh, and this, we don't know for sure what the Song of Ascents were, but it's likely that they were used on pilgrimage up to Jerusalem. Jerusalem was a higher elevation, so you would speak of going up to Jerusalem. And there was multiple times during the year that if you were a faithful Israelite under the Old Covenant, that you would journey to Jerusalem to celebrate one of the festivals unto the Lord to worship God. And it's, it's possible that Psalm 123 was sung, was prayed by God's people making this journey as they experienced mocking or contempt or scorn as they're making this journey, perhaps from unfaithful, unbelieving Israelites or perhaps from pagan Gentiles. And this psalm 
gave them a response? How, how could they respond when they were mocked, when they were treated with scorn? With prayer, with lament. Psalm 123, in fact, is a community lament. Uh, do you guys remember the four, the four elements of lament? Number one, turn. Number two, cry out or grieve. Number three, ask. Number four, trust. Uh, the element, and so these four elements make up a lament. Psalm 113 is the model lament. They're all very, all four elements are clearly seen there. And we, we looked at that psalm together many months ago. Uh, element number four is, of trust is not seen explicitly in this psalm, but it is very implicit in the psalm that the, that the psalmist is entrusting himself to God's care as he prays, as he cries out to God for relief in the midst of mocking. And I just want to remind us, church, that lament is a gift from God. This is the God-ordained means to experience his comfort when we are hurting, when we are suffering in a fallen world. The big idea is simple in Psalm 123. Look to God when scorned. Look to God when you are scorned. The psalmist writes, a song of ascents, to you I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. Behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maidservant to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God, until he has mercy upon us. Have mercy upon us, O Lord, have mercy upon us, for we have had more than enough of contempt. Our soul has had more than enough of the scorn of those who are at ease, of the contempt of the proud. Application number one, look to God in prayer. Look to God in prayer. You are going to be mocked. How do you handle it? You lament. We've already seen so far in our journey through the Psalms multiple reasons to lament. Suffering, grief, betrayal, injustice, suffering at the hands of evildoers. And now we see another reason, persecution, contempt. I personally can testify to the power of of, of God's healing in lament. I was attacked for simply believing the Bible um, by someone I knew, and it really, it hurt me. And as I prayed lament, I experienced supernaturally the power and comfort of God. It was beautiful. It made actually the suffering worth it just to gain that intimacy with, with my Father in heaven. Well, not only does the author look to God in prayer, but notice what he prays. To you I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. Application number two. Remember God's authority and power. Remember God's authority and power. In your prayers, and we saw this last week, didn't we? In your prayers, we need to remember who God is. Just like the psalmist does here. He says that God is enthroned in the heavens. And that phrase is just pregnant with meaning. 
What is his point in this description of, of, of saying God is enthroned in the heavens? His point is God rules over the entire universe. Do you remember, we've seen previous references, multiple previous references to God being in the heavens in our journey through the Psalms. Psalm 2, he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. So in Psalm 2, the picture of God being the heavens means that all the puny rulers of earth are nothing to God and that none of their schemes or plans can thwart what God does, that God has the final word over all things. That's the point in Psalm 2 of God being in the heavens. Psalm 103, 19, Yahweh has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. The fact that God's throne is in the heavens points to the fact that God rules over everything. There's not a single thing in our lives. There's not a single subatomic particle in the universe that is not under the reign of God, under his control and rule. Psalm 115, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. God being in the heavens means that he is sovereign. He's unbounded. God's plans are never thwarted. God does whatever he wants. And because he is sovereign, because he rules over all, we can look to him for help. Just as the psalmist describes. Behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maidservant to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God till he has mercy upon us. Application number three, frog. Okay, frog, yeah, just don't, yeah. So one of my, what's one of the Awana students in here, tell me, what does frog mean? Gold star and you get a frog. All right, so. I was not trying to intentionally hit you, Tom. All right, yeah, fully rely on God. Application number three, fully rely on God. The, this idea of, this, of, a, of a servant looking to the hands of his master or, a, or a, a maiden looking to the hands of her mistress, it's this idea of looking to someone who has power and authority, who has resources, who can take care of you, who will take care of you, and looking to them until they provide, until they supply. And notice he says, till he has mercy upon us. Sometimes we have to suffer and wait, don't we? Sometimes the answer does not come immediately. There are often in, in the history of the world and in the history of God's people, it is, it is often the case that we must endure seasons of injustice, of suffering, of being slandered, of being mocked. And we have to learn to wait on God, to rely on Him, to persevere in prayer. This, this beautiful metaphor of a servant looking to the hand of his master 
is an attitude of humility, of dependence. We live in a world that champions self-sufficiency. Uh, I, I see this so many, in the, I, we like to watch some of these uh, uh, challenging uh, reality TV shows where they're doing a competition, where they're racing, or they're, right now we're watching a survival uh, series uh, with our kids. Um, they, they put a group of teenagers out in the wilderness for a couple weeks with a former uh, commando, and he's like teaching them survival skills. And, and the kids are like, yeah, I'm learning that I can do these things. And, and it's great that they're off their phones, and they're out in the wilderness, and they're, and they're growing um, but there's, but there's this championing of self-sufficiency. And there's a right sense in where we want to raise our kids to be self-sufficient. But we also recognize that the godly man or woman is the one who knows himself as nothing and is desperately dependent upon the Lord for life, for breath, and everything, in the words of Acts 17. To, to recognize that my very breath comes from God. That I'm standing here right now because God in his mercy and his kindness is moment by moment giving me the beat of my heart and the breath of my lungs. The Apostle Paul says something rather remarkable when he reflects on his ministry in in, uh, Corinthians. He says, uh, writing to the Corinthians, he says, I planted the seeds, referring to the gospel, I planted the seeds, Apollos watered it, but God made it grow. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything but only God who makes things grow. The Apostle Paul says, I'm nothing, Apollos is nothing, it's all God. And that's why Psalm 115.1 that we looked at a few weeks ago must be the foundational cry of our heart, church. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. For the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. If all things are from him and through him and to him, then all the glory goes to him. And may we be a church that is joyfully and humbly dependent upon him and giving him credit for everything. If we want to be a church that is mightily used by God, and I I want that so desperately, don't you, church? Don't you want to be a a church that God fills with his spirit and does great things to impact the community and even into the nations? That this church just spills over and having an eternal change and impact on the world? Don't you want to see the kingdom come here and now in Layton and in, in your surrounding areas here in northern Utah? I don't think, well, thank you. I'm glad somebody does. Gold star, sister. So me and this one sister, we really want to see this happen. I don't think that's going to happen if we're a proud church. Because Scripture says three times, three times in Scripture, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. It's the humble church. It's the church that says, God, we're a bunch of nothings. We're a bunch of dumb sheep. But God, will you please glorify your name here? That's the church that God will use. You know, a a basketball in my hands is not worth a lot. But a basketball in the hands of LeBron James... I'd love to see the two of you play. 
Anyway, <clears throat> God can pick us up. God can do something beautiful with us if we would but be positioned for that. And that's a position of humility. And it's a position of, of looking to him as, as Tom prayed that our eyes are looking, you know, I lift up my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, that that's our vision, that that's our perspective, that we're that humble servant waiting on his master to provide everything. And when you believe that, you start praying big prayers and you start praying desperate prayers. You start praying in such a way you're like, God, if you don't show up, this is going to fail. It's going to flop, God. It's going to be a disaster. But God, if you are in it, nothing can stop it. You're enthroned in the heavens and you rule over all. This attitude of dependence is made loud and clear in the psalmist's next request of God, his direct request. He says, have mercy upon us, O Lord, have mercy upon us, for we have had more than enough of contempt. Our soul has had more than enough of the scorn of those who are at ease, of the contempt of the proud. This verb here, the, uh, they, our soul has had more than enough. Uh, it can sometimes even connotate the idea of having to endure something to the point to the brink of what is even tolerable. The, the, the psalmist is crying out for mercy because of the amount of contempt and scorn they have received. So what do we do when the wicked mock us and ridicule us and treat us shamefully? We don't go vigilante and put our Batman costume on and take matters into our own hands. No. We go to God for help. We tell him our pain. We entrust ourselves to him. And you know, somebody has already modeled that for us, haven't they? Have you considered how this psalm points to Jesus? The righteous being scorned and mocked on their journey to be faithful to the Lord. Who embodies that better than King Jesus. He was mocked. He was despised. He was rejected. And how did Jesus respond? And this is Jesus. He could have called down lightning from heaven. He could have consumed them with fire. Uh, he could have had, as, as God did with those who opposed Moses, the earth just opened up and swallowed them. God has done that before. Be, be, on, be on notice, you proud of heart. But Jesus didn't do that. He entrusted himself to God's judgment. He says in 1 Peter 2, When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Jesus, the perfect God-man, sets us the example. This is what the whole book, I mean, look at the book of 1 Peter. It unpacks this in detail. Jesus sets us the example of what it is like, what are we here to do when suffering. We entrust ourselves to God. God will have the final word. God will have the final verdict. And it really doesn't matter if people think I'm a loser, if people think I'm a bigot, if people think I'm whatever. If on the day of judgment, King Jesus says, well done, good and faithful servant. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if the world rejected me. If God approves. 
Jesus entrusted himself to God the Father. He did not get derailed or thwarted by the attacks he experienced, but he entrusted himself to God, and he got down to business, and he finished the mission. And that's what we need to do, church. We lament, we pray, we trust ourselves to God, we cry out for his help, and we finish the mission. And we trust the end results, we trust the final judgment with him. Psalm 123 is a great picture of describing our pain, of crying out to God, all the while maintaining an attitude of steadfast love and trust in the one who hears our prayers. Church, you don't have to be a public figure to be attacked for your faith in Christ. Contempt, scorn, and persecution can be expected. Settle now. Choose this day. Whom will you serve? The hostility to Jesus is a really good thing because it forces us to choose our allegiances. We can't be wishy-washy. We're going to have to choose. Are we going to follow the resurrected king? And if he came back from the dead, I think I'm going to believe everything he says. Or am I going to follow the world? Joshua charged the people of Israel. He said, therefore, fear Yahweh and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Take heart, Selah. Take comfort in the words of Jesus. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. In the words of Bible scholar Daniel Estes, For the worshipers in Psalm 123, the Lord is the awesome king who is enthroned in heaven. But he is also the approachable and merciful to his people on earth. Because of this, he is unlimited in his power. But he also has a relationship with God's people that behooves him to intervene to help them in their time of need. Because he is both great and gracious, the Lord ministers to his people with both strength and sensitivity. God is both great and gracious. And that's why we can come to him in our time of need. When you are mocked, pray and entrust yourself to God. Father, as we go into this time of meditation, Lead our thoughts as we reflect on your word.